Hello and welcome to the Tefauti podcast series. Right, I'm joined today for the Tefauti pod or the next episode of the Tefauti pod with Dr. Winnie Kiru. Winnie is a very well-known wildlife biologist who has been working to protect Kenya's wildlife for the last 20 years. She previously served as the regional representative of the UK-based charity Born Free Foundation and as a trustee of the Kenya Wildlife Service. She holds a PhD in biodiversity management from the University of Kent in the UK. Winnie is a proud Kenyan woman who is a savvy leader and a protector of elephants along with all of Kenya's human and wildlife treasures. Welcome to the Tafauti podcast, Winnie. It's an absolute honor to have you join us. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Winnie, I think it's, you know, I'm just, uh, having read that out and listening to it, you know, you've achieved so much uh, within the wildlife arena. And just to give our listeners a little bit of an insight, um, you know, you've been in the Kenya wildlife circles for over 20 years. Tell me a little bit about that journey and, and, and how it sort of got you to today. Right. So um, I would say my journey in you know, the conservation world re- literally started by accident. I joined Kenya Wildlife Service as a young research assistant. And then one time walking through um, the corridors really bored, I bumped into a woman, Joyce Poole, who was running the elephant program at the time. And she said, oh, are you from ecological monitoring? I said, yes. Would you like to come with me to Amboseli um, for a few days? Because I need to do some work with elephants and I really like to have somebody in the Land Rover while we are doing this. So I said, of course, yes, <laughs> because I hadn't been to Amboseli before. And yeah. you know, the rest is history. I went there, fell in love with elephants, fell in love with Amboseli. I really got a great mentor in the name of Joyce because she not only loved elephants, she knew so much about them. And that started my uh, career in, in wildlife conservation. And then it wasn't just elephants. It then I got to realize that there's a whole angle that people have to be in the equation. And then I joined Bonfi Foundation and I discovered another whole new world of people away from Africa who think very differently about wildlife. They still love wildlife, but they have a, you know, they think that you can keep an elephant in a zoo and and all that stuff. And it was a whole different world. I learned there's a pet trade out there. There's, you know, then I learned that there's a lot of advocacy that one has to do, you know, give people the right view of what Africa is and what, wildlife is about and then I after you know spending time really discovering a global view of wildlife then I went back and and studied some more wrote my master's my PhD and all this time I grew into the field not just in Kenya but beyond and now I work with a continental I consult for a continental organization called the Elephant Protection Initiative as as a membership of 21 different countries so I've kind of started to understand a lot more about the continental issues. I have worked a lot in the wildlife uh, CITES or the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, bringing African voices together. So it's been an exciting journey for me, both in terms of personal growth, uh, 
giving other people a hand up, telling the world what, uh, how Africa experiences wildlife, and really also building a wonderful network of people across the world that are just so valuable um, in terms of what they do for wildlife and what they think about wildlife. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, wow, you covered so many initiatives, different things you've sort of been involved in. And, and as you say, the connections uh, are fundamental in order for whether it's fundraising or, or various different elements, you know, us leveraging. You touched on it very briefly um, within that explanation, Winnie, around, um, you know, there's, there is an element of a disconnect from us as Africans on the ground, immersed, I say, immersed in the problem to sort of other countries around the world who want to help. And I'm sure through Born Free, you probably saw that. So your role there, did, how did you manage to make it benefit us back home here in Kenya? Or, or how did you sort of mold that, that element of difference, which you say was a little bit of a surprise uh, in some ways, but people don't live with animals like we're lucky enough to do here in Africa. Yes, yeah. It's true, you, you, you think that, um, an elephant is an elephant is an elephant, right? <laughs> and so there, <laughs> there's the aspect that where it's an awesome animal and once you've studied about it, the ecology, the social behavior, it's, it's really uh, an amazing animal. And then, but then you have to have a healthy respect for this animal because there are times when people who live very close to this wildlife will be impacted very negatively by the same animal so you get people killed by wildlife their crops destroyed their livelihoods destroyed so yeah. the people who live with wildlife experience the good it actually shapes their cultural and social narrative a lot but they also experience another side of living with wildlife and then you travel um to the US or to the UK, and you meet people who've only experienced the good and the beautiful. You know, they've seen wonderful photos and videos of little baby elephants with their floppy trunks, and they've seen all the, you know, it's, it's beautiful, an elephant, and they've seen all the behavior. And what is amazing is that the number of wildlife films, the amount of footage that is available to a person abroad that is completely unavailable, for instance, to a child here in Kenya. The kids here in Kenya don't get to see those amazingly beautiful wildlife films that everybody is seeing in the UK and the US. And so I understand how that narrative is shaped, you know, of wonderful animals. And, and also another narrative that has gone into the film world is one of a great Africa without people. You know, like you hardly ever see the people in the films. You see all these wildlife films, lots of animals, but there are no people in there. And so the person watching these films comes up with a narrative of all these beautiful animals who want to come to Africa and see all these beautiful animals. First of all, they don't even understand what it takes, even just in terms of protecting them, the government and all. And then what it takes to live with these animals. And so to be the person who um, has had to go and see 
one captive wildlife. People also in the West, they feel they have a right, you know, to see a jerenook, to see an elephant, to see a rhino. To see. So they will capture it and put it in the zoo because they feel they have a right to see it. And you cannot believe how shocked I was when I saw my the first elephant in a zoo. Oh, what, you have an elephant in a room? Like, this is all the space the elephant has? Yeah, and this elephant was bobbing up and down with total stereotypic behavior. And I was like, this is not an elephant. Like, elephants are not like this. <laughs> and, I, and next to me was a school group. This was a zoo in LA. And there was a teacher or some animator walking with the kids. And the, 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 the kids asked, what's the elephant doing? And this animator said, it's bobbing to some music in its head. And I said, no, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. This elephant is very unhappy. You need to get it out of here. But you see now, when I, I meet zookeepers, they actually love the elephants. They are there doing manicures and cleaning them. And even writing on the boats, so this elephant is lucky because it's escaped poaching in Africa. This elephant has escaped having to go out and look for its own food. We just feed it here and then we give it manicures and pedicures and massages. And <laughs> no. That's not true. Yeah, so, absolutely. You know, it's that basic stuff. And then there's the big stuff about the trade. But the fact that somebody shows up because they had this an African person coming to dinner, they show up in an ivory bracelet or a necklace. I had that happen to me in Italy. And this woman, and I was like, and of course, as usual, I start talking about elephants and how wonderful they are and how terrible it is that it's ivory that has caused them. And she's there because she had received this necklace from her mother or grandmother or something. She has no relationship between, she can't relate the fact that this elephant that produces ivory is dead. You don't get ivory from live elephants. So I must say I've been in awkward situations I have been in amazing situations where someone just needs you to explain something and they get it. And I've been to horrible situations where people are not ready to learn anything. They are just stuck in a certain way. But all this has taught me that I should never take it for granted the experience and the beauty of having been born in Africa and having experienced the beauty of our natural world. Because the reason why someone else is so removed from it is because they didn't have the privilege. Yeah. And so I don't come from a place of pride. I come from a place of total humility because I didn't choose to be born here and to just drive uh, 200 kilometers and be surrounded by elephants, being elephants, you know? somebody else the only way they're ever going to experience an elephant is behind a cage and it's up to me to say that's not an elephant really really but it's also appreciation our side of the fence i find you know i've been involved at galana wildlife conservancy for a long time now and we run initiatives with with schools there and we were talking briefly before we started recording about schools and i'd love to hear about it more about it but we, I sort of sit down with the children and say to them, you know, it's not normal to be playing football and having three bull elephants basically as your crowd. 
but because of these remote schools, you know, they, they, they just take it for granted because elephants are on our doorsteps in, in rural communities, rightly or wrongly, you know, they, they are, we sort of, we, we are intertwined uh, in our existence with them, especially in the remote locations such as Savo. Um, and I know you've done a lot of work in the Shimba Hills uh, as well, which I which I'd love to hear about because you know coastal communities. I was sort of brought up in that world, and elephants are the charismatic species that you're a specialist on. So I'm sure you learned so much uh, in the Shimba Hills out of all the research that you did. Yeah, Shimba Hills is a is really a very unique coastal forest. You know, we don't have a lot of those. Forest is very much remnant forest along the coast on the coral, right? And so you find this amazing forest um, uh, areas that are so um, rich in different plant and animal species. A lot of them endemic. You know, you don't find them anywhere else. Now, this little um, place, Shimba Hills, was had a population of elephants but that were completely surrounded by a farming community. And it became um, almost impossible for the people in the wildlife to share the space because the elephant population was increasing very, very fast because the forest is full of food. I mean, the forest, they were thriving. And so when I was there, we had a project to try and link two forest areas just to try and increase the area that is available for elephants. And to link this to, we had to convince a community, peasant community, people who literally live hand to mouth to vacate their land, to create a corridor between the Mwaluganje sanctuary and the Shimba Hills forest, just to increase the acreage or the area that was available to elephants by a small 20 kilometers square. That's all we were getting, but it was so important for the elephants. And so I spent a lot of time in meetings under coconut trees, just trying to talk the people into moving out. We're going to be compensated and all, but remember, this is their ancestral land. They've got their you know, relatives buried in this place. Some of them were born there. They, their stories, the stories of their lives are there. So even relocating them and giving them a place to move to is not good enough. And then the promise that we were giving them is that as part of their, the benefit from moving out, there was going to be a hotel development, an ecotourism development, which would then result in them getting some financial benefit as stakeholders of the land. You and I know that it takes time, even when you build these hotels, it takes time for them to generate any revenue that would make a difference to a household. Mm -hmm. So the work was tough. It was, and of course, as we were doing that, elephants were still coming out every so often, eating people's crops or maybe injuring people and every one of those events would take our conversation, you know, like weeks and weeks back. So we made 10 steps forward and then the elephants got us 20 steps back <laughs> because they did what elephants do, right? Yeah. Um, but what did I learn from that whole experience? I learned that wildlife and people have intricate histories tied together and it is 
foolish for someone, let's say a researcher, someone come to come into an area and think that they know the full intricacy of that relationship of mm. elephants and people or wildlife and people. It is deep. It's, it shapes everything that they do. And so as a biologist, if you go into a place and find that these people have been living with elephants for hundreds of years, please remember that they do have very, very intricate histories that you need to take time to understand. Two, I learned that you cannot um, pay people for, you can't compensate somebody for death of a relative. There's nothing. The only thing that can make them move on is going back to those histories, those intricate cultural things. Because after a long time talking to somebody who's lost a relative, they will tell you things like, in my culture, we believe that is just bad luck. Maybe there's something our grandparents did that didn't please the ancestors. And this is why one of us has been killed by an elephant. Because they think of it this way. There have been elephants here all around. If elephants were killing people every day, we would, be all, we would all be dead. <laughs> but yeah. it happens only once in a long time. So yeah. to them, it must be something that is linked to the ancestors. It's not just an incident. And so around the barriers, they do a lot of rituals and to cleanse the rest of the family so that they don't get carried on by this ancestral caste. Mm-hmm. And they feel that this person just paid reparations for something, maybe an answer. How can you then think that you can pay for that sort yes. of thing? So I learned that I cannot be an elephant conservationist if I stay detached, if I stay away from the communities. I can't do those things anywhere. I cannot learn them from a book. I can't even learn them from any other place except from the real people. So I try, I try as much as possible, even if, as you grow in the field and you find yourself in offices and meetings and planes a lot. This is what has triggered me to start my own little grassroots organization, Conservation Kenya, which gives me time. Now I never take full-time consultants. I take consultancies that can give me a few days off so that I'm able to go and spend time with real people. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many presidents and, and princes I meet, which I do these days, <laughs> but I still want to be able to go, stay in my little cabin, walk to the manyata, drink sweet tea, listen to the stories, learn which cow got which, you know, and then now we talk about the sad stuff, you know, so-and-so lost a child, was taken by a hyena. What do you think happened? Because I feel that unless I interact with real people, I'm going to lose that essence of what it is to be an African, what it is to live with wildlife. And I can only pretend to be a conservationist and I don't want to be a pretend conservationist. I really want to be one. <laughs> Who knows the heart of it? Yeah. Exactly. And that's, you know, a lot of what we try to advocate with Fauci is around uh, understanding the complexities on the ground. Um, I use the words fortress conservation um, that we sort of in the Western world assume we know better 
uh, and almost impose a, a, a way or a program or an infrastructure into communities, uh, rural communities or wherever the projects may lie. And we assume that we understand and a lot of the time, unless, as you say, you sit underneath the coconut tree drinking whatever it is that you, you know, blood and milk, which I do quite a lot because I work with a lot of the Marseilles, <laughs> you know, and you do actually understand and because you can speak the language and because you can engage with the people and all of those, it's so important and it cannot be uh, sort of pushed to one side because whilst our passion is wildlife, 100%, the community, it's a package. We're intertwined, I said it before, and that's so important in our fundamental understanding on how we can make a difference. And to sort of touch on that, I guess being sort of a fellow Kenyan, what do we need to do better, should I say, um, to help keep our incredible biodiversity for the next generation? It's very topical at the moment. I'm sure you've seen it with things like Earthshots, and all of these sort of climate change things that things that are just taking over our earth and we are we're sort of earth children should i say we sort of are people who have the voice and are trying to help uh communities sort of start engaging in it is there anything that you think we can do better uh or more of uh within the kenyan sort of side that, that to sort of help us with that if i knew the full answer of that i'll be ready to die <laughs> <laughs> We're still working on it. <laughs> the truth is, one day I think I know, and then the following day I figure out that everything I know actually makes no sense. You know, I it's it's you have to reinvent, rethink, re-strategize every time because some of the problems are so local and the solutions are really local. Other problems are national and mm. You have to engage at a very high level of kind of political dialogue to be able to influence anything at that point. Then there are other problems that have such a long historical perspective, layers and layers of unresolved conflicts mm. that have completely buried the solution to the extent that if you go into an area and you can clearly see that, for instance, if we did this here, we would solve this. What you forget is that there may be layers and layers of wrong conversations that have happened, that whatever solution you come up with, people see it mm. from a lens of the unresolved issues. So there are histories, there are special issues, and then there are political and governance issues that complicate everything you think is a solution. So for instance, I love Amboseli National Park. There are some elephants in Amboseli that I feel like are my relatives. It's like I know them, yeah, like, you know. And yet, I'm really worried about Amboseli as a park because it's tiny. If you think about Savo National Park, the size of Switzerland, right? Amboseli, on the other hand, is tiny. It's just 400 square kilometers. I know many Kenyans with land parcels bigger than Amboseli. Mm. Now, Amboseli elephants have depended entirely on the Maasai lands around that are demarcated as group ranches for their survival. Yeah. As we speak today, the largest group ranch around Amboseli has been subdivided into small plots. 
Mm. Now, um, the push for subdivision has been going on for a long time. Yes. And there have been many, many different initiatives to try and keep the group ranches intact so that yeah. they can manage the single units because that is what is good for the survival of both the Maasai and the elephants. Mm. But the politics of the day, sometimes poor local leadership and conflicting national agendas, mm -hmm. they all come together and then eventually you find that subdivision happens. Now, this subdivision means that now, instead of developing projects and programs with one unit, which is called a group branch, suddenly, mm. as a conservationist, you will have to go in and negotiate with thousands of people. I know, yes. And some of them have never seen an elephant. They just had land was being sold, they bought it. You know, they, they've never seen an elephant, they don't care. Actually, they bought land to grow tomatoes or avocados or whatever. Yeah. And the title they have to the land allows them. Now, all the land that has been demarcated as, say, corridors or, you know, buffer zones, they have no standing in law. You know, our national laws do not really, really enforce those corridors that we wildlife people know are so important. They don't enforce buffer zones. They don't enforce everything that we know would make sense for the wildlife. So now when you ask me, so what is the solution? Should I just walk away and say, uh, can't make a difference? Wildlife in Amboseli, this is, it's over for it. I can't because now last weekend I was in Masai Mara. The people in Masai Mara worried the same about subdivision. And indeed, I saw some very sad things, not very far from the Sekenani gate, you know, a lot of fences, a lot of subdivision. But there are still people who've worked really hard and recreated conservancies, which are being run by individual landholders have come together and decided, okay, we are going to manage our land in large parcels together. So that may be the way to go in Amboseli to check who is it who is buying the land. But you have to then have a value proposition for these people. Yes. Because you can't tell me to vacate my economic activity, if I had thought of coming to grow avocados, tell me you can't grow avocado because we need the land for the elephants. And then you tell me just for the love of elephants, you'll leave the land. If I thought of the land as a source of economic benefit, you have to give me a value proposition that tells me that there is some economic benefit. Do I know how to do that? No, I don't. But now everywhere I go, I am now thinking conservation finance. I'm thinking, there are lots of people out there who have money which they are willing to put into impact investment and they are not even looking for a return tomorrow because whatever will happen to save the lands for wildlife is not going to give you results in a day or two. It's going to require lots of conversations under the acacia trees. It's going to require a lot of new thinking in terms of what are the factors of production that can compete adequately with what historically or traditionally people know, scratch the ground grows and 
is there something else they can do? Is there a form of livestock keeping that will not require all these fences that people use for paddocking? Is there a way in which value can be added to livestock, for instance, such that a person who keeps their land open, keeps good livestock, is able to get a return that can compensate them the same way a person growing avocado or whatever. You know, how does that market work? What's the value? Yeah, what, how can you give value which competes well enough with other traditional ways of getting value out of land and yet that value does not totally compromise the survival of wildlife, the ability to have reasonable tourism uh, activity. How do you do that? I don't know the answer, but I bet you there are enough kids in school. There's somebody in Harvard Business School <laughs> right now. <laughs> Let's find them immediately. <laughs> <laughs> There's someone in Harvard Business School who can sit with this problem and think about it. I'm willing to sit and drink sweet tea with them in the Manyatas forever until they take my thoughts, they take their thinking or what conservation finance is and then develop a proposal that we can now take to the next big climate fund or uh, you know whatever funds are out there, which can save even a few inches of amboseli for the elephant. I'm convinced that if we invite a lot of collaborators to the table and actually try and find unlikely partners, I think for too long conservationists, our mistake has been talking to the choir. You know, we preach to the choir, we preach to those people who we think, because they look like us, they understand stuff. But there are bankers out there, financiers out there. There's a guy who's making serious money from Formula One and he's tired of buying the next Ferrari. <laughs> Those are the people we need to speak to. Absolutely. Yeah. I do think the future of conservation is, it's, you know, we're at a crux time. We're hanging in the balance a little bit. And I do think that we do need to start um, re-strategizing, as you put it so well, uh, around how do we um get value uh, or give value to the communities who own the land where wildlife roam mm -hmm. or have roamed for generations to try and incentivize them mm -hmm. um that that actually protecting wildlife is worth it um because it is a commodity that we have to protect here in africa you know not every continent is lux luxurious enough to have the kind of amazing um variable sort of species that that we have across our continent but they're depleting and that's i think just the truth and we need to start working collaboratively together absolutely i totally 100 agree um so finally just i guess i'm asking for another bit of advice when uh, you've kind of said that, that that the last one was such a difficult one to answer but you're so right with what you gave um, somebody who wants to get involved in conservation efforts, but is that one removed? You know, those the sort of Western societies that we've alluded to uh, and the different way that they view wildlife. What would be your encouraging statement, I, I guess, to try and get these people involved in conservation efforts? Because when you are a, a distance apart, it's quite difficult to understand what we're, what we're talking about here, elephants and, and how they migrate and 
and how their family dynamic works or their social like background you know all their emotional sort of side you know we we know that as kenyans we know that as africans but but how do we make people uh, abroad understand that and how can they sort of help us with our with our efforts okay i like i said we need a whole lot of collaborators now we need people who understand for instance financing models that we've never thought about we need people who understand how to communicate because if we are able to communicate the challenge that we have here of trying to conserve wildlife in a human dominated uh, continent and not one that is necessarily hostile to wildlife, but one that is forced by circumstances to constantly look for solutions and sometimes those solutions cause conflict and yet if they were given alternatives maybe it's not necessary for them to live they can live harmoniously in in and coexist with the wildlife to be able to communicate differently to be able to influence even the media narratives that there is an Africa that has no people. Africa has people and a lot of them. <laughs> and these people have aspirations. When a mommy gets a baby, they want them to grow and be and achieve their potential, whatever potential looks like for them at a particular time. Some people are just happy the baby will grow, get married, get more babies. But there is someone with an aspiration of sending their child to university. Yeah. If they're going to send their child to university, they need the resources to do that. So how do we communicate um, the aspirations of the African person? So my short answer is this. Because we need so many skills. We need so many people at the table. I don't think that you need to board a plane to come to Africa and to spend time under a tree for you to make a difference. I think the world is wonderful now. You can educate yourself about all sorts of things without moving from your living room. So my first thing with people who ask me that question, I say, learn as much as you can. But so that your passion can be valid, start with what is around you, okay? So if you know the birds in the woods around you and you know the squirrels and you know the trees and you know yeah. then value what is around you first learn how to take that nice first photograph do a bird feeder look after what's near you yeah and slowly educate yourself expand your horizon and know more and more about what is not near you then start to understand the interconnections for you to appreciate that we are living in a global village you cannot isolate yourself actually the more indifferent you are the more dangerous it is for you look at covid mm. who knew who thought that one day there would be a virus that would stop the world all so because the world is so interlinked and it is so small, 
I tell the people who want to get involved, not just in conservation, you want to make an impact in the world, get in, educate yourself, get interested in what is going on around you. Stop thinking that inside your phone is where life lives. Don't look at life only through one small um, gadget. Travel to the next village. Just keep expanding your horizon. You start understanding the interconnected. And then one day if you land in Africa, you'll just be adding another circle <laughs> to what you know. And it will, yeah, and it will be easier for you to be humble. It will be easier for you to, to absorb new information. And it will be easier for you to make a difference because you started by respecting what is around you appreciating what is around you, loving what is near you, and it makes it, or expands your heart to be able to then take in everything else around. I don't know if it makes sense to you, but this is what I tell all these little girls who send me messages from Canada. I say, near you, do you live in a flat? Near you, is there a wood or a park? Yeah. Start going to the park, yeah. spot the birds, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just... It makes it relatable, doesn't it, Winnie? Yeah. I guess you know, we're yeah. so privileged to have yeah. animals on our doorstep, as you say. Yeah. Not everybody yeah. has that luxury. So yeah. understanding your world and taking your blinkers off, off, and then from there you can start expanding out uh, into sort of the, the broader world and understanding more about, about what is so special about the natural world. Um, there are so many great phenomena out there. Um, start by wanting what is so far away and you don't even appreciate what is near you. Absolutely. You know? When you turn on the tap to brush your teeth, think, where does this water come from? You know, how yeah, can I... We're so privileged. Water? We're so yeah. privileged that we don't think about don't those think. kind of things, which is yes. which society uh, advancements and what we what we grow to expect when we grow to expect things like that and it shouldn't be an expectation if you know what it's like on the ground when you start appreciating where does your rubbish go when you're finished throwing away all the christmas wrapping where does it go when you start thinking about those things then you are ready now to leave get on the plane and go somewhere else but if you're just living your life indifferent about what's going on around you. Don't leave, stay there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Thank you so much, Winnie, for your um, in incredible insight, invaluable advice. Um, and of course, just, you know, trying to sort of make everyone start, start realizing the complexities of how do you fundamentally make a difference? It's, it, it seems so easy looking in but actually when you're in immersed in it it actually is not is not that simple is it so thank you so much Winnie it's been an absolute pleasure um to have you with us on the podcast and uh, I very much look forward to watching your progress with the very various initiatives thank you thank you very much I'm Krista Cullen. Thank you for listening. And if you'd like to know more about Tefauti and our projects, please do visit us on tefauti.org. T-O-F-A-U-T-I. T -O -F -A -U -T -I.